Thessaloniki, by the way, is roughly 110 miles west of Philippi. It's about a four or five day trip. Remember how Paul had gotten the Macedonian vision, a uh, vision of a Macedonian man in Troas and makes his way into Europe. There's one, a page with some blanks. You want to pull out a pen, you might want to fill those in. Don't do that if I start saying this. Arguably, Thessalonica or Thessaloniki was originally either called or near an area of about 30 villages where the predominant one was called Thermae. Anyone want to guess what the word Thermae means? Hot. Hot. It's, yeah, excellent. It means hot springs. It was the hot springs. So there are hot springs there. That was initially the pull to the area. However... After Alexander the Great's death in 323 BC, there was a push for political centricity. There was the idea of trying to centrify the Grecian world. Now, I remind you, if you were to look, Greece kind of hangs down today. We have that area like Athens and Corinth, that sort of area, and then it works its way up. Then you have this area around the Aegean Bay, the Thermos Bay, and that area is the area of Macedonia. In those days, Macedonia and Greece were two separate countries, if you will. In 315 BC, eight years later, after this desire to centrify the Grecian Empire, the king of Macedonia, or Macedon, a guy named Cassander, founds this city. And he names it after his wife, Thessalonike. Now, we use half of that as a sporting brand today. Nike, which, by the way, means victory. So Thessalonica literally, or Thessaloniki literally means Thessalos victory. Now, interestingly enough, she happens to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And she happens to be the daughter of King Philip II. That's the Philips that make the city of Philippi. Naming after himself. The reason they name her that is because on the day that she was born in 52 B.C., there was a tremendous victory at Crocus Field. To commemorate that victory, she's given the name Thessala's Victory, is the idea. Now, in the 200s BC, Rome built the Ignatius Highway. You're probably aware of the fact that Greeks were really good at imposing their mindset, influencing everyone to give them a common language, but it is the Romans that built ports and, and uh, roads that connected the world. The Ignatius Highway, and you can actually see it on the map on the other side, in essence, in the simplest sense, kind of connects uh, like Albania all the way to Istanbul. It is a huge, huge trade route from the Adriatic Sea all the way to the east end there. Of, in those days, we would say uh, Bithynia, which then becomes Constantinople, which then becomes Istanbul. It also sits on a route connecting Greece and the south to the Balkan Sea in the north, the Black Sea. So in the crosshairs of those intersections is this place. <clears throat> it is then a crucially important spot for two of the most important trade routes of the day. Therefore, it becomes prosperous and very well occupied. As a matter of fact, during the days it was the second largest city in all of Greece. 100,000 to 200,000 people. Today, there is 1.2 million people living in Thessaloniki. Considered, by the way, 
by travelocity or one of those travel things where everyone talks about how bad their food was when they ate somewhere, as one of the ten greatest cities to visit today for historical importance. And I'll be honest. What's called that? What's called not? Thessaloniki. And it is, sadly, I think of all the places in Scripture, it is the places Thessaloniki and Philippi are the two places I'd have to visit and would really, really, really want One of these days. When they build the Ignatius Highway, like a traditional Roman road, by the way, it is roughly six meters wide, roughly 20 feet wide. That's how wide Roman's roads were, which tells you, by the way, they actually could handle American vehicles uh, versus all these Mini Cooper things. Uh, But also, it happened to be roughly 700 miles long as well. I mean, that's quite a substantial highway. Because it is the second largest in Greece, and it was clogged with people, there were more people per square inch than just about any other place you could find. Then parts of Rome, do you know what the most occupied city was, of course, in those days that was Grecian? Athens. It was a port town, and that was the one thing that they had, was it was actually open port, versus this being deep in a bay. So think of it as a place that is the commercial center, clogged with people, and thus also the political center. It is rife with diversity, as far as people are concerned, and shuffle of people. And might I say, you know, we've talked about places like Corinth was kind of the Amsterdam or the Las Vegas of the day. I'll be honest, Thessalonica was basically the London of the day. Now, granted, London actually existed, but the London as we know it today, it was like that. Clogged full of people, super emphasizing diversity, the political capital, and commercial center in the sense of you can get Think about what kind of food you can't get in London. Think about what kind of product you can't get in London. I've never been to a city that has more conveniently available, both in vice and in diversity. Now, if you consider that, this book becomes infinitely more personal and pertinent to you and me. The largest Grecian university, by the way, to this day exists there. It's Aristotle University. It was the second wealthiest Byzantine empire in the Byzantine Empire. And by the way, it would be that way in through the fall of Macedonia. I remind you, it was the capital of Macedonia, that region, which fell to Greece in 168 BC. That is roughly about the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you remember the guy that thought he was God incarnate, the nut job that he was who was ultimately conquered by Rome in 41 B.C., and Mark Antony, for what it's worth, actually called it, made it, declared it a free city. In other words, it was free to operate as long as it, in essence, still paid homage to Rome. So in other words, what's different between this and Philippi is radical. Philippi, I remind you, sort of its closest major neighbor, 110 miles away, Philippi to the east, was a garrison. Remember that? It was a Roman garrison. We are proud to be Romans. Roman soldiers retired there. It was Rome, 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 Rome. As where Thessalonica, on the other hand, Thessaloniki, was very proud to be Greek. Even though it had been conquered by Rome, and it had been conquered over and over and over again, it will be conquered by the Ottomans for roughly 500 years until the 1900s, when it actually obtained its freedom. It's important to know, they were very proud to be Greek. They were proud to be smart people. But basically, think of it this way. A Londoner is more proud of what I've noticed, and maybe it's an outsider's view on this, although I'm a Londoner, more proud to be a Londoner than they are to be British. 
And I'll be honest, coming from California, the connotations of coming from California are very different from coming from America. Even though California is in America. So if someone were to ask, where are you from? I would be quicker to say California, because that has a different connotation than saying from America. Because I don't have to answer questions about President Trump or the other things, because he's never invited me over, and I don't know him personally. Uh, and by scripture, we're never to speak evil of any form, person who is in charge. We're to be praying for them, which is, by the way, I think something the church has been very guilty of not doing. So let me actually play out some themes here really quickly. But I ask you to take these to heart with me. Because if this really is like London, then this is exactly where we need to be in this. Because it's the commercial capital. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? What does that mean is that everybody's selling something. Everything comes at a price. Everything is, you know, you're like here, you know, that nobody gives you anything for free. You know that if somebody offers you something, you're asking what the strings are attached to. And therefore, grace is unique. The idea that God would give you these things, and it will be an emphasis in this book. The idea, especially when Paul talks about the ministry, how he actually worked so that they would never charge the people. In other words, and what you'll see is, especially when we get to chapters 2 and 3, how often he emphasized the rip-off artists that they're so used to and how careful he was to show himself very different from that in this religion that he calls Christianity. It is the political capital, and therefore... Hey, come on in. It is the political capital, and because it's the political capital, therefore talk with action is unique. Because what they're used to is, like with most politicians, they're used to lots of talk. They're used to lots of promises. They're used to basic lots of, you know, sort of lots of, and what you'll find is Paul will say, not only did we not peddle, but we didn't flatter people, we didn't, maneuver people. We didn't play political games. And might I say that he's, he's going to show that it's much more patriarchal than it's political. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because it is a place of consistent subjugation, constantly being conquered. Enduring persecution or standing up and remaining under hardship is a very unique thing. And what you'll find is Paul will say that he's still in a place of persecution, he's still in a place of hardship, and so are they. But that's not that weird. But because it's blooded with diversity and countless people who are just fighting to make it and survive, is that not London? Hope is unique. The idea that we could look to, and what is the primary hope? The return of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more stressed. As a matter of fact, I challenge you, at the end of every chapter, five short chapters, at the end of every chapter, he's going to bring us back to the return of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is to him. Because it is a selfless, I'm sorry, selfish, loveless, cold place like any clotted city would be, love is unique. And when Greece transitioned people from a communal to an individual perspective, the idea that it focuses on the individual, thus family is unique. That becomes the point. And Paul, it'll be in this letter, Paul will say, you know we treated you like a mom does her kids? You know we treated you like a father does his children? He's like, in other words, he says, we, we treated you like family. 
we didn't treat you like like a business. We didn't treat you like a politic or a political movement. We treated you like family. Aristarchus was from there. Acts 27 tells us that Demas, when he forsakes Paul, forsakes him to go here to Thessalonica. It says that in 2 Timothy 4. Of the possible visits, and you can look at those on your own because it'll talk about how Paul went through Macedonia. That's the region still. We are sure that Paul went to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. He had just, I remind you, been arrested and beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. God rocked the foundations of the prison. They were released and they were escorted out of town. And Paul winds up in Thessalonica. He shows up at the synagogue and ultimately finds an even greater persecution in Thessalonica than he did in Philippi. They want to kill him. Paul flees there with his crew. And he winds up in Berea. And the Thessalonians are so twisted about Paul, they actually head all the way to Berea to chase him out of all of Macedonia. They would be like fleeing from here to France or even to Germany in comparison and people coming from here to make sure you don't even stay in Europe. That's kind of the idea. So I want you to at least know that. As we get into the book now, we'll just read through it and we'll stop as we go through things. I do want to point out one thing. Uh, because most of you were there on uh, Sunday, you know as we talked about Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about the end times and he spoke about specific aspects of his return. And he talked about a worldwide hatred towards Christianity. Imagine what that would look like during this particular period of time when Nero was on the throne and declares war against Christianity. The reason I say that is it would be very easy to start being concerned about the rapture. And by the way, people are like, well, that's sort of a, the rapture is sort of a fifth century idea, isn't it? No, we're going to get into that here as we get into the text. But it is important to know that it would be a struggle when you start to see things that look an awful lot like that. So, you ready to dig into the text? Any questions on this before we actually just jump in? I didn't think so. Here we go. We'll just start reading through it and we'll stop and make comments as we read through. How's that? First Thessalonians, verse chapter one, verse one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. You were 
examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Akka there at least and build on a couple of things. Remember how the rarities of things like love and hope. Notice these were the things Paul was looking for in verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, which by the way tells us that trust in God, your faith should actually lead you. And by the way, let's clarify that word work. Because that word becomes a challenge for people like Martin Luther. And so let's just address that. The word work is the word ergos in the Greek. When you have the Greek word for end, do you know what the Greek word for end is? End. There you go. It's just en instead of en, if you want. Absolutely. When you say something is in work, the word is en ergos, and that's where we get the word energy from. Ergos, in its simple sense, means action. En ergos, or energy, in a simple sense, means inaction. We use the word work, but that, to be honest, is a... 16, a 17th, 18th century word for action. It doesn't work like where we sign up, punch in our time card, and we're actually employed in an occupation. The idea is that this type of work is the idea that it breeds action. That's why he says faith without work is dead. And what he's not saying is, well, you have to, you have, to have faith, but you also have to work it off, because that's what we think of as work. The idea is faith without action is dead. Your faith should make you do stuff. Anytime you trust something, it's going to lead to action that will demonstrate it. So it's not in any way a challenge against total faith in God and the great grace that saves us. What he's, saying, he's not saying that it's faith plus works. He's saying that it's a faith that works. So when he says, I, when I consider without ceasing your work of faith, what he's saying is, I consider... With, I, I can't stop thinking about the, and remembering the fact that your faith made you do stuff and that you labored to exhaustion in your love and that your hope bred patience. Does that make sense? Notice he says, by the way, remember the idea of overcoming the political aspect of the temperature of the community, that our gospel didn't just come in word only, but it came in power and the Holy Spirit in much assurance. Because you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Because we were very different than just people coming in and touting the new thing. We became followers of the Lord and received, in, in, received the word in much affliction. They accepted Christ knowing that it was going to cost them. Could you imagine what would happen if that was us? If we knew that accepting Christ was going to cost us our families or our popularity. I was talking to Suzanne today about a young lady who... Uh, went to sort of a Christian dance thing several years ago we were associated with, but she was put off by it because she was not willing to let people... She was, she was uncomfortable coming out with the fact that she was a Christian and a dancer. And it's like, wow, but here's the problem. When you are a Christian, it is going to cost you. Mm -hmm. These people accepted Christ right in the face of knowing this was going to make their life more complicated. It wasn't a life improvement program. It was an eternal improvement program for which then life improved. And with that he says, and then we got those two places. You became, as an example, now understand what he says is, you guys were an example to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, you know what blew the rest of the world away about your faith? 
And so you clung to Jesus in the face of very severe adversity. Does that make sense? And let's face it, when you see people that are getting hammered for their faith but refusing to veer from it, it inspires us. He says, you weren't just that way in Macedonia. I remind you of that upper lip region of the, the northern bay of the, of the Aegean Sea that we see. But the area of Achaia is the area of Greece today. That isthmus that heads down. So he goes, all that area of Greece plus the Bay Area of Macedonia. He goes, they, of course they knew about you guys getting hammered for your faith and it inspired them. He goes, but everybody around the world, Christians around the world were going, you guys need to be more like the Thessalonian church. Can you think of any place in the world right now where people are so persecuted for their faith that you're like, man, we need to be more like those guys. I don't worry, like Iran is one of the places mm-hmm. I can tell you. People that are really getting tortured for their faith. Mm-hmm. Northern India, mm-hmm. Bhutan, Nepal, radical persecution. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. But there aren't. And what he's saying is, man, if we could talk to those people for a moment, I'll be honest, I would be shamed. Mm-hmm. I would be shamed at what I would complain about when these people are actually, in essence, Death is, a, is, is quite the possibility any given day for their faith. So does it make sense then? He goes, he's like, can I let you guys know you inspire me? You inspire me because this was not a convenient Christianity. This was an expensive faith. Verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true the living and true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from death, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Look at how chapter 1 ends. To wait for his Son from heaven. The word wait, by the way, for what it's worth, is the word anameno. Anameno, in its simplest sense, means to remain amidst it. And the idea of it is there's an anticipation and an expectation for that. You're waiting for Jesus. They're not waiting for the end times, first and foremost, or for the Antichrist, or for a new world order. They expected Jesus to show up at any given moment. But they didn't just expect him to show up. They expected him to be resurrected. Notice this is whom he raised from the dead, the resurrected Jesus. And look at the last statement in verse 10, a very important statement. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. What that tells us is there is a coming wrath. And wrath is coming. But so is Jesus. The word delivers, for what it's worth, as you see it here, is the word rumai. And rumai means to rush in and pull to yourself. It's to rescue. To pull out. Now I'd like you to realize what he's saying. One thing I see with you guys and by the way, no church seems to be listed more in regards to this than this particular church, which will become very pertinent next week in Second Thessalonians, is that, he goes, I notice that you guys are eagerly, if eagerly expecting Jesus to come at any given moment, because you know when he does, he's going to yank you out of this thing before the wrath really hits the fan. Does that make sense? Now, there is a verse, by the way, and it's important to know when we talk about the tribulation. The real question is, what is it there for? I mean, if God's just going to punish people, because it's like, some people look at it like it's just an extended punishment. 
Like God's going to just punish them on earth, make their life miserable, and he's going to make their life more miserable on earth, and he's going to make their life more miserable on earth, and then he's going to send them to hell. Well, that sounds pretty darn mean. But this is what it says, and by the way, if you have your Bibles, you know, turn to Revelation chapter 3, and he speaks about the church of the Philadelphians. And Lois, because you have such a lovely reading book, will you be willing, please, to read Revelation chapter 3, verse 10? Yes. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. So wait a minute here. Jesus promises the church of the Philadelphians, because they have kept his command to persevere, he will actually keep them from the hour of trial. Did you see that? What does he call this? The hour of trial that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Why would he keep them from this hour of trial? Because they've already passed the test. You need to realize, and again, this is just my understanding, so let me just say this is the limited view of the human mind seeking to know the heart of God. The book of Revelation, as horrible as it seems, is actually a very encouraging book. There was a world, and by the way, I challenge you to look up the term, those who dwell upon the earth. It's a very common term used in the book of Revelation. About a group of people who have made the earth their home versus God. To test means to bring it to its base metal to see what it really is worth, what it's, what's really at the core to weigh it out properly. There are those who will say yes to Jesus Christ simply by preaching, and we're praying that for this young lady tonight as Angel is sharing. Very few people seem to come at the times of greatest prosperity. Traditionally, we tend to come to God when one way or another something becomes very acutely obvious in our lives that's missing or is really bad. And to be honest, the world kind of knows that because they kind of look and go, isn't that for losers and drunkards and crazy people and so forth? And, and what they see is somebody comes to the end of themselves. And when they come to the end of themselves, they're like, okay, I need God. Oh, boy. But they do that in this horribly proud state where they assume they'll never come to an end of themselves. When I came to Christ, I actually had lots of money at that moment. I had had quite a bit of influence at that particular season. All the things that the world had to offer, in one way or another, that I could have pursued, I think that I had gotten to the point where I had more than I could use. And I was miserable. And the reason I say that is that some of us, by God's grace, came to Christ without disguise. I would say I have a few, though, quite a few, on my way there. But not everybody learns that way. We all have to come to an end of ourselves sooner or later before we realize that we need to be rescued. And that's why when we tell people Jesus died to save you, it's insulting for a person who doesn't think they need to be saved. 
rescue me. What kind of jerk do you think you are? So there are those who will say yes without that. And then there are others, life's going to have to get more miserable. The world is just keeps saying we want a world without God. God says, you don't want that. That's hell. It's hell without me. So God gives him a taste of what the earth would look like without him. And things get worse and worse and worse and worse. What's interesting is, even in the midst of all those things, God stops the carousel for a moment and sends 144,000. Have you had enough? Say yes to Jesus. And then it gets worse. And then he sends two witnesses. Have you had enough? Accept Christ. And then it's, have you had enough? Then it gets worse. And then angels stand the earth so that other people, by saying, declaring the everlasting gospel. Do you realize what that is? That is God giving every person every possible chance to say yes to him. Nobody is going to stand before God unless they're absolutely deluded and say, you didn't give me a chance. And people are like, well, what about people in China? Oh, God knows how to get to them. And if you're really concerned, you should go there yourself. It is important to know, if you know the story of Elijah, Eliyahu, against the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and all there on a showdown, if you remember, in 2 Kings chapter and ultimately, after they do all their stuff and cut themselves, and prophesy, by the way, these false prophets, they prophesy and they cut themselves with stones till the blood gushes out. Kind of God makes people do that. And then, it's Eliyahu's turn, and he says, God, would you please just let these people know that you really are turning your hearts, in other words, that you really want them back, and that you really, you want them. And then fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice, the rocks, the water, the trough, everything. The real question is, why didn't God just in that fire just <coughs> all the prophets of Baal? Because Elias is still going to kill him. You know why? In my opinion, because God didn't want them dying before they could actually realize who the real God was. So they had one last chance to say yes. That's the God I serve. And I just want you to realize the whole idea of the tribulation is the idea of pushing people to the wall so they could finally make a choice. You know why I don't have to be pushed to the wall? I've already made my choice. Apparently you have too. But I think we're going to be really surprised who may be left behind because to be honest, though they may have claimed to make the choice, the jury's still out on a lot of things. Just because we go to church doesn't mean we've made the choice. And the issue is I can't tell you who is and who isn't. The only person I can tell you is me. Is that fair? Let's go to chapter 2. But I want you to know, he looks at his, he goes, you guys inspire me. You guys are getting hammered for your faith. And one of the things I see is the more you get hammered for your faith, the more you get excited about the Lord's return. I think that that's a very encouraging thing when you actually feel like you really are getting hammered for your faith. Remember that the Lord's coming back. And that there is a wrath and you're going to miss it. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'll start there and we'll go on. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before, and was spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
we were bold in our in our God speak to you the gospel of God in much comfort. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time with these flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is with Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you see the political aspect of that? Like we didn't play the political game? We didn't seek glory from men, we didn't use flattering words, we didn't cloak covetousness, the stuff you would use to in politics. But let me tell you what we did instead, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. For affectionately longing for you, we were all, we were well pleased to impart to you, not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, with a view to become theater. It wasn't about politics, it was about a family. We treated you like a nursing mother does her baby. She cherishes them. By the way, when it says you had become so dear to us, that word's love, agape. You become so agape to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have that we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exalted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. That you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his, king, into his own kingdom and glory. Can I just say personally, these two verses were some of the most important verses of scripture in my life. Pivotal scriptures, I should say. December 26, 21 years ago almost 22 years ago now. I'm just about to leave for Israel the next day for the first time. And my wife says, oh, I forgot to give you. There's one last present I need to give you. We've given all of our presents on the 25th, of course. But my wife had a boxing day gift. And it was in a box. So I opened up the box and it was a little strip with a plus in it. That was my Christmas present. And I'm leaving for Israel the next day. I think, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a father. What the heck is that? I don't know how to be a dad. My dad had a lot of really great qualities. He certainly taught us how to overcome anything, to take on any challenge, and to never back down. You were going to be victorious with my dad, and I really appreciate that we were able to glean that from him. But he was also a man with his own giants to slay. There's no doubt about it. But he, would necess- he wouldn't necessarily have been the man that I would have modeled fatherhood from. Of course, I get to go to Israel. You know, the joke is a prayer in Jerusalem is a local place. And I just went to God, and I was like, could you help me be a dad that you would be proud of? And the Lord brought me to these two verses. Because let me tell you what a father looks like in Scripture. Verse 11. You know how we exhorted, and we comforted, and we charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you 
things on chain and glory. He goes, can you exhort? Can you challenge? Or to warn? To comfort? To encourage? And to charge? On one side, to stop them from doing the wrong thing. On this side, to encourage them to do the right thing. And in between, comfort them. I says, that sounds like a dad. I'm sorry, that sounds like a coach. Because the men that I would have respected before that point in my life that I would have said were, were at least men that I would have said had qualities that were worth emulating were all coaches to me. And he goes, can you be a coach to your children? I, I, could, I think I could do this. And that set me on my feet. It was these verses right here. And I'm like, to this day, this is my litmus test for me as a dad. And by the way, it also is as a pastor to men. To encourage you to get off your butt and do the right thing, to challenge you not to do the wrong thing, and to come beside you in every process in between that I can. Can you guys do that? Because what I really want you to do is walk worthy of the God who calls you. How do you walk worthy? In other words, represent him properly. The people, when they look, they see the real God. They see the real Jesus because of the way they live. So, I'll stop there, but at least I want to do toss that out at you guys because you realize God calls us all this. You know, when it talks in, I can't say, I'm not going to stop there. First John, it tells us that there are three different levels of maturity because he says, I write to you and he says, I write to you children. I write to you young men. And then, then he gives a third one. So there's a progression in spiritual maturity. Children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And because you've known the Father. That's where it starts. When you first give your life to Christ, you know what you know? Your sins are forgiven and you know God. Because then I write to you young men because you are strong because you've overcome the wicked one and because the word of God lives in you or abides in you. You know what you see when you see spiritual adolescence? You see strength. You see vibrance and you see the enemy no longer has that same influence in your life. And you see the word of God being something that is functional in your life. That's just adolescence. But what I find interesting is he doesn't go, I write to you young men, I write to you children, I write to you young men, I write to you old men. He says, I write to you Children, I write to young men, I write to fathers. And when he gets to fathers, it's the same statement. It's both times. I write to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning. God would expect us as men. I'm talking to you men. Ladies, you can take a quick sneeze. I'm writing to you, I'm talking to you men. And I'm sincere about this. God wants us growing up. There's no spiritual Peter Pan. And what that means is we start off by just knowing that we know God and our sins are forgiven. That is a great place to start. I just walked around with a whole lot of people like that. But we move from that. And we move from that to a place where the enemy is not something we fear anymore. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we're not just trying to tackle and top over boxes to find demons. Because the word of God lives in us. And there's a strength in that. And so when the enemy comes at us, just like he came at Jesus, we do what Jesus did. If it worked for him, it should work for us. And that is that he quoted scripture. He pulled out scripture that was pertinent to the issue. Scripture was functional in our lives. The word of God lives in us. But God anticipates that as we grow up, we don't just become old men. We become fathers. We become people who warn and encourage and exhort other men to live lives that are worthy of calling ourselves Christians. Because the world has seen an awful lot of false Christianity out there. And to be honest, I blame people who don't grow up to become fathers. We are not training them to do that. And can I say, 
if I, whatever time God has me remaining on the earth with you guys, let's grow up together in that. Let's not be afraid of it because it doesn't mean we grow old. It doesn't mean we grow bitter. What it means is we grow fruitful. And that's what he intended. I'm done. Verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same thing from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Who first killed the Lord Jesus and their own and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they plead not to God and they are and they are contrary to all men. Forbidden us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the me- the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uppermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So, where are we at now? Look at what he says. You've become dear to us, you became witnesses, and that you would... I'm sorry. See what happens when I space. Paul had wanted to go there, but Satan had hindered him. And boy, people love to take that and run away. But wait a minute, isn't God in control? How can Satan make his life miserable like that? If you go to the book of Romans, what you'll realize, Paul says, I'd actually want to come to you before, but I've been hindered from coming here as well. But that I would come at the right time, that I would have fruit among you. God can use anything he wants to stop you, to divert you, to move you, to slow you. And the enemy, in all of his wiles and works, is just another tool in God's belt. Anything the enemy wants to do, it, first of all, the enemy can't touch you. First John 5 makes that clear. But whatever tools he tries to use, be that sickness, illness, circumstantial, or whatever the case may be, if God allows anything, it is to set you up for something greater. And you realize Paul's like, man, I've wanted to come to Rome a whole bunch of times. I mean, I heard the gelato and the cappuccinos are pretty amazing, especially around the Trevia Fountain. But I haven't been able to get there yet. But I do know this. When I get there, it's actually going to be the most fruitful time. You know, Paul is brought before the people. His dream is always to stand and to share Jesus with his own countrymen, the Jews. He finally gets the chance at a Pentecost. He makes it to Jerusalem. Pentecost, by the way, is the most of the three required feasts of the year. It's considered the most visited in Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because of the time of year, which happens to be April, May, the traveling is a lot easier by boat. In other words, people can come from farther away and less treacherous. You go during Sukkot, it's like October. That's a rough time to sail on the seas. So people that are much farther away have a harder time getting there. But April, May, that's prime time. It's like kids are on half term. It's a pretty easy time to get there. So, 
It's the most people. Chances are between one and two million people near the temple precinct. And Paul has an opportunity to share with them finally. And he starts to share with them. And by the way, after nearly, you know, I mean, think about it from 34, now we're looking at roughly 50. So we're looking at roughly 15, 16 years. Uh, and I'm sorry, actually nearly 60. So he's roughly at this point, roughly 26 years. He's been a Christian. And he actually, after all of that, doesn't argue, doesn't throw out a whole bunch of apologetics. He simply shares his testimony. It's interesting that Paul's grown in his own ministry to the point where he says this is going to be the most effective thing. To be honest, from that point on, that's all he does is share his testimony. And as he does, the people listen. He talks about his conversion. He calls Jesus Lord. He even calls them guilty. Uh, to some degree, calls them guilty for actually having Jesus killed. And they listen to all that patiently until he says that... Jesus actually wanted to send him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and then they erupt. They try to tear him apart. They try to kill him. And he's next to a Roman soldier that he, you know, can you imagine a Roman soldier who doesn't hear him speaking, doesn't understand what he's saying in Hebrew. Can you imagine he asks, "What did you? Why did they go so mental on you? What did you say?" And imagine him saying, "Well, I just said that he would say, God would save you." How rough that would be. Mm-hmm. Here's the point: pause and be locked up. And it says, "The next night, Jesus appeared to them." Whenever you go, what do you mean the next night? That night would be good. <laughs> Paul just spent a that night first, and a that morning, and a that afternoon, and then the next night Jesus shows up? Did it take him that long to get there? Why did he wait? Maybe Paul wasn't ready for Jesus to say what he had to say. You know, sometimes the Lord would speak earlier, I'm convinced. We're in no condition to hear what he has to say. He's like, don't worry, you'll actually get to Rome. Remember how you wanted to go to Rome? Well, you're going to get there now. I'll get you there. You've got, you've got a date with Caesar. You've got an appointment, and you're going to need to get there. And the only reason I say that is, nobody knows the timing like Jesus does. Paul's like, man, I really wanted to go to Rome, and in this case, I've been trying to get back to you guys but I've been hindered. I'll get there when God wants to go. Because if I get there too early, it's not going to be fruitful, and if I get there too late, it'll be too late. But God's never late. So anyways, but notice how chapter 2 ends. What is our hope, our crown, our joy of rejoicing? Our crown of rejoicing is that not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. Notice again, He's pointing out Jesus is coming again. But you are our, our glory and our joy. Chapter 3. Is it me? Did you say? I'll do three then. <laughs> Therefore, when we can no longer endure it. Now why is this? Because remember that people are getting hammered for their faith and he's afraid that they're going to bail on it. Therefore, when we can no longer endure it, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone. And sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Then no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this. For, in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulations just as it has happened, and you know. For this reason, when I can no longer endure it, I sense to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter I tempted you, your labor might be in vain. So now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, 
and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. No, look, let me say this, and I'm sorry to cut you off. What is it that Timothy reported? What did Paul look for to make sure that they were still trusting Jesus? Faith and love. Faith and love. He's like, you know, I'm not just looking for people saying, yeah, I still believe in Jesus. He's still looking to see if, they, if there is that selflessness. Exactly. All right. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what things can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Night and day praying and feeding you that we may see your faith and perfect and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So that you may establish your heart, laying with his holiness before our Lord and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Notice how chapter 3 ends. You know, may the Lord increase, cause you to increase and abound in that love. Because if you do, by the way, your hearts will be established blameless in holiness. When? When Jesus Christ comes to his place. Yeah. Chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. This is received from us, how you ought to walk and please God. For ye know what commandments we have gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and you should abstain, you should abstain from sexual immorality. Notice this is God's will. That each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. No impression of lust, let the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Did you notice that God calls himself the Avenger here? Philip just thought that Dan would appreciate that. But do you realize what God avenges? A brother defrauding another in what area? Are you afraid? In sexual sin. It's like, he goes, look at, you need to know this. God takes this very seriously. And he will avenge. Do you know what I mean to avenge? Get vengeance on a person that, uh, that leads a brother into sexual sin. Because you know the will of God is for you to be holy. Because you don't need, you're not to be acting like the world. You need to not act like the world. What's interesting is, he'll show us in a moment, you're either going to act like the world in lust, or you're going to exercise brotherly love. But you can't do both. And there are people defrauding out there. By the way, what do you think happens when a Christian brother has a defrauded sister, do you think it's any different? He's like, don't worry, Jesus will just forgive you. You realize God takes that very seriously. He wants you to control your vessels in sanctity and in honor. 
That's a very big deal. Because he actually says that such things wage war against your soul. God doesn't want you living that way. Alright, verse 9. But concerning your brother who loves, you have no need that I should write to you, but you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Notice that love, love, love thing again. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. And indeed, ye do it towards all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we perceive you, brethren, that ye also increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we com- commanded you. Do you realize that God actually told you to mind your own business? <laughs> mm-hmm. right here. I've had people saying, what's, you know, trying to peek into something, and I'm like, there's Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 11. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning, the, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You want to see the end of a chapter? See what he's pointing out. Listen to this. Traditional marriage, and I won't develop it as much as I would love to. You have a whole book to write on the traditional Hebrew wedding ceremony and how this all plays into it. From the government being on the shoulder to the temporariness of a daughter versus the permanence of a son, why God calls us all sons, because we're all permanent members of the family the idea of the shosh benim, the friend of the bridegroom, that John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. The one who introduces the bride to the bridegroom. And by the way, John will ultimately make reference to being the Holy Spirit doing that work. To the bride price that needs to be paid. Do you realize everything that God does, he does in the full? Let me ask you. There are three ways to become part of a family. What are they? Birth, Mary, adoption. adoption. So which of those pertain to you in regards to becoming part of the family of God? All three. You were adopted. Spirit of adoption dwells within you. You were engaged to Christ. You were married to Christ. And you were born again. There are three different ways to get your bride. You could work three and a half years for her. Because remember back in the days when Jacob had to do it twice for a fella to get the girl that he really wanted? For uh-huh. Leah, the girl that I had to bait and switch with. Uh, you know, so they bring it down to three and a half years, or he could redeem her. He could pay her debt, or he could redeem her dishonor. So which of those did Jesus do? How long was his public ministry? Three and a half years. You realize, Jesus did them all. So the price is paid. The girl goes. Tell me, this is a man's world. The girl goes and spends time now at the spa. Oils and perfumes got that from the book of Esther. It's a time of beautification, they call it, six months to a year. While she does that, and basically she's surrounded by girls that are really excited about the wedding, they're the virgins. 
Nobody's more excited about a wedding normally than girls who aren't married. Sad to say that. Anyways, the whole idea of it is there to guard her purity. That's the idea. Meanwhile, the man goes to build a place. He goes to build a, a house on the father's estate for the two of them. He's never stopped thinking about her. He's working for her. But when he's done, he goes and he gets her. Jesus says, Behold, I go prepare a place for you that where I am, and then I'll come when I'm done, I will come and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. It's a total wedding metaphor. Then he comes down and rides on a litter. A litter is the, basically the limo of the day. It's the thing on the shoulders of, of men. It's like a box, you know, kings in the medieval time they rode. Large and in charge, Jesus. Well, that's the idea. They're right on the shoulders of men. He comes, in other words, he's showing himself a superior above the other people because this is his day. To this day, they still do that. You know how they do that today in a Hebrew wedding? They grab a chair. Have you ever seen this? And they pick it up and put it on their shoulders. You know why they do that? Because it's the same thing. That's as close as they can get to it. Now, when they do that, by the way, it isn't that they just do it with the groom. They also do it with the bride today. Why is that? Because in those days, what happens is they get to the town. Hey, when does he come? When he's done with the house, if he's excited about it. He's done with the house. At any given moment, that could be the middle of the night if that boy can't wait to get his girl. And what does he do? He goes and he shows up and he comes with a couple guys. He comes with a really loud-mouthed individual and a good person who can play a horn. A guy has to blow a horn, and what that does is it assembles and wakes the people up or it tells them there's an important thing that's happening here you need to assemble. And then there's a person who shouts out loud what it is. The wedding of Lugopedia! The close thing. You know, so, right? And that's what, okay. And so what happens at that point, the girl can't come running to him. She has to stay in the house. You know what happens is the old people in the town are the first ones, and they, if it's at night, they light torches, and they actually line the way to her house. Makes it easier for him to find. Why the old people? Because the old people are the ones who are old enough to know that this marriage is acceptable. The idea of it is that they're not, he's not marrying his sister, or that he's not marrying somebody that they're completely in war with each other, and the debt hasn't been paid. They're the ones who stand at the city gate. Does that make sense? They have to come first, and they lead the way. Then the groom comes. He's on the, I mean, you're on the litter. He gets to the house. The father of the, of the bride lays that court of government upon his shoulder, and he takes her and pulls her up into his litter. And what he's saying is, everybody, this is my girl. This is my girl. And everybody cheers. And they are there above everybody else because they are the honored ones because for the rest of their lives they're going to live it together. Does that make sense? Now, if you get that, listen to this. Because the Lord will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the trumpet call of God, with the voice of the archangel. Trumpet assembles them, the archangel tells you why. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who are they? They're the elders. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them into the air meet the Lord in the air. Who are we in that? We're the bride. And therefore we shall always be with the Lord. Encourage each other with these words, would you? Do you get it? The word caught up is the word harpazo in the Greek. Harpazo, the word for caught up, when translated to Latin, is the word rapturas. And it's where we get the word rapture from. Mm. To be caught up is to be raptured. The same word, it's just a different language. Because harpazo doesn't sound as cool as to be raptured. 
Sounds too much like being harpooned. Let me ask you. Does that encourage you? Does that comfort you? That the Lord's not just coming to wreak ravage on the earth. He's coming for His love to show the world this one's mind. And you get to be a part of that. Will it be wild to see the dead in Christ rise first? Christians, that some of which I've known have given their life for Christ, fleeing to situations, a friend in India that's surrounded by Hindu militants, the man and his wife and his, their children throwing themselves in their station wagon, surrounded by the radicals that covered their car in petrol and set it on fire to burn them alive. They won't look like that when they rise again. And at that moment, I guarantee you, none of us are going to look at another person and say, ha ha, I told you it was pre-trib or anything like that. <laughs> will not be the point. It'll just be way cool to get sucked into this guy. I, have a, I knew a guy that was a comedian, and he said that when, I, when the rapture comes, I hope I'm between two unbelievers. I'm going to grab them by the hand, and as we're getting sucked up in the sky, I'm like, do you receive Jesus, or do I let go? <laughs> anyway. But notice, by the way, notice again how every chapter has ended with this thing, and this is almost like the climax. It's like, you do realize when he's coming, it's not just that he's going to wreak havoc on the world. On a Christ-rejecting world, it's going to get bad enough that people will know they have to make a choice. Mm. In the time of comfort, you really don't think you have to make a choice in anything. The hardest choice is hungry house, deliverer. Mm. I mean, this is the, these are the weight of our choices. It's like, this is the most, choice most important choice you'll ever make in your life, and you're going to get pinned to the wall in real life if you need to make this choice. We, on the other hand, I'm really cool with actually making the choice now. Mm. Ready for our last chapter? And th- I mean, to me, I read this, and my heart ignites, and I think, Man, we need to let people know. Because when the church doesn't think this, when they don't consider this anymore, we totally get fat and lazy and not care. But if he could come back at any given second, and the only thing left is, well, wait a minute. Well, what's it going to happen? Chapter 5. I'll start it again because I don't know who that's up. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Do you notice it doesn't say us? It says them. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So let me just say this. What these verses all have in common. First Peter five eight, first Peter one thirteen, Titus one eight, Titus two two, Titus two six, first Timothy three two, first Thessalonians five two, first Thessalonians five eight. Eight times directly God says you need to be sober minded. This is no longer time to be scatterbrained. It will be over 27 different times indirectly God will tell you you need to actually be sober-headed. But he starts here at least in this. Look at it. Don't sleep like everyone else. 
This is not time to fall asleep on your watch. Let's watch and be sober. Verse 7. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know why? Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, that whether we, we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other, and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And now before we get to the last final exhortations, at least I should make clear that context because you get so excited about the rapture. People were freaked out. It's like, what about the people that died before Jesus came? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that wouldn't freak you out if you didn't think Jesus was coming anytime soon. But they were so expecting Jesus to come at any given moment, people were starting to die, and it was freaking out. They're like, wait, my grandpa just died. What's going to happen? Jesus is going to rapture us. Where did he go? That's why Paul said, well, considering those who have fallen asleep before us, I don't want you to freak out like you have no hope for them. Actually, when the Lord comes back, they'll be the first ones to show up. So in other words, obviously they lived in this expectation in such a way that when people started to die, they're like, I actually didn't expect my dad or my uncle or my cousin or my grandpa to die before Jesus came back. Now what happens? So Paul's like, don't worry about that. I've got all that covered. So all of this time and all this, he's like, look at it. As a result of that, well, what about the people who remain? Live like he's coming and live soberly. Because it's no time to lapse off. Final exhortation, verse 12. Is it me? Okay. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among you, brethren. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the weak hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Be that no, be that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Can I say this? Anytime we do a clinic on counseling, Christian counseling, these two verses are the foundation. Warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak. Be patient with all of them. See that no one renders evil for evil under any circumstance. And pursue what is good for you and for everyone. I challenge you, if you held those standards, almost all of your counseling will become very simple and clear. You probably just memorized the thing. Yeah, let's memorize too. Pray without In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Test all things, all pastors. Abstain from every form of evil. Notice, by the way, by the way, you're like, well, how am I supposed to pray without ceasing? That's a great question. So I close. I mean, I can't pray. Close my eyes and kneel. How am I going to go to bed? Well. It's important to note the, na- the word pray, pros yukamai. Literally, pros means towards, you means good, kamai means intention, will. The simple of it is, you cast yourself before God's good will. I might say it this way, surrender. And we should do that incessantly. 
this simple act of prayer is one that's like, not my will, but yours be done, is the, the mantra, if you will. It's like, that should never stop. There are other words for casting your cares, for interceding, for asking for things. Those are other words. But the simplest overarching word for prayer, the one most commonly is prosukamai. The simple means, simplest sense means to cast yourself before God's good will. And he goes, you shouldn't. Is there ever a time you shouldn't do that? <laughs> and if it's anything like me, I find myself that has to be a, a really frequent thing to do. But notice he also says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies. And people are like, see, there it is. We should always be able to prophesy. But then notice in the next verse, you better test all things too. You know why we don't despise prophecies? Because we're not afraid to test them. Sorry. Last verses. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I, and I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Is another verse in seven. Brethren, pray for us. Be <laughs> all the brethren with the Holy Kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Isn't that an awesome book? Look at how this chapter ends. Look at verse 23. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every chapter curtailed at the end of it all with He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. You're right, he's coming. Mm. He's coming. Isn't it great? Comfort each other with the fact he's coming. And when he comes, he's coming for you. Ralph's coming, but don't worry, he's coming. He's coming first. Right. Any questions before we pray? Mm. So in the dead in Christ, they, I don't think this before, but if they're asleep, they're not with Christ now. What's interesting is they are. Because to be absent of the body is to be present with Christ. So they're there. So why in the world do they just... Because it actually says he gathers them from the four winds of heaven. They're not there in body, is that right? Yeah, they're not there in a physical body. They're, mm. in, they're in spirit. Because, I mean, after all, why in the world would you want a physical body up there? Mm. But he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And when he rules and reigns for a thousand years, he says, if you endure with me, you will also reign with me. So we get this challenge that he's going to have other people helping him reign, if you will. And you know where that will be? The faithful. And for that, you will need a physical body. So you don't pull him up, pull us out, allow the time of wrath, if you will, the time of tribulation, and then he will descend, rule and reign for a thousand years, and when he does, he'll take us with him. And at that point, you'll need something physical to sit in. So you'll be, you'll be busy doing You'll be busy at work. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it would be one of those. But by the way, do you know, it's not the only time that that's actually sort of happened. Because it tells us that when Jesus resurrected, the bodies of many Old Testament saints rose up and roamed mm. the city of Jerusalem. That had to be fun to be at. You're at Passover at your house, and you'd be like, remember when great uncle Shammai used to do that thing? And then he's like, hey, it's great uncle Shammai. And you're like, what? <laughs> How weird is that experience? Now, what that looked like, I have no idea. It doesn't say. But I have a feeling this is going to be pretty darn awesome. 
So if I die before the Lord comes back, although I tend to think he's going to come back any given moment, but if I do before that point, look for me. You know, and I'll be like, yes, got rid of that last three kilos. (laughs) 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 Fat worms down there. Anyway, yeah. But you know what? I mean, let's face it. When the church really stopped, I mean, you get engaged, and in the beginning, that ring, man, that ring is beautiful. And you stare at that ring, and you flash your hand, and everybody sees it, and they're like, oh my goodness, there it goes, the squeals and all of that stuff. But imagine that, I don't know, some guy named like Runo, you know, gets engaged to a girl named like Badness, <laughs> and in the beginning, it's like it's the ring, they're excited, things are beautiful, they're all, you know, everything's beautiful, but then Badness asks Runo the obvious question, so when's the wedding? And he's like, I don't know. Sometime in the future. I don't know. And maybe in the beginning, she's so excited about being this badness character. Is so excited. This is all hypothetical. She's so <laughs> excited about the fact that she's got this ring, and now she's in this new category of engagement. Now, people are really excited about it. But like 15 years go by, and people are like, hmm. And that ring doesn't have the same meaning anymore, because all of a sudden, that engagement ring doesn't seem like it's attached to a wedding like it was mm-hmm. at the beginning. And so all of a sudden you get things cool. Unless you realize, no, this is a reality. This is a reality. And the less it feels like a, a reality, the less the ring has any bearing. And in that same way, the Lord wants to remind us. He's coming. This wedding is happening. And if we forget about that, our hearts will stray. And we'll start looking around at our other options and, of course, that is in no relation to Bagnus and Bruno. Uh, but because it just it loses its meaning. And the church that loses that excitement ceases to act engaged. Mm. And I don't know of any church that I could say that I could see that really looks excited about the wedding. Mm. But we need to be. Mm. So let's be different. Let's not play a mind game and all that. Let's just embrace the reality that he's coming back. He's like, five chapters, five different times I've reminded you, how many times do you need to hear this? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. What's interesting is that wrath coming thing, nobody seems to have a problem embracing that. Clearly the world's falling apart. Clearly the end of the world is coming. And I mean, the scientists have finally caught up with us. You know, and it's like everyone else is trying to make sure we're not throwing away a plastic bag, but it's sin that's killing the world, and that stuff's just part of it. And in the end of it all, it's like, yeah, but all of that stuff should get us excited because all that means is that the wedding's closer. You know, the wedding's closer, you know. What does that mean to us? Well, it all depends on what part of the wedding you're at. But for me, man, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever the Lord wants to do. I just want to follow and be faithful. I want to pray for us. And then let's take some time and worship each other. And let's do it like a God, like like people that are excited about our coming do. You know. I remember, man, I remember when the wedding was and I remember how insane it was. And like a guy, I didn't care what color the doilies were or what lace design it was. But you can't say that. I'm sorry, I'm just saying that in front of badness. Um you know, it's like, it isn't, you know, can't say, I don't care, because you really don't care. Who cares what thing is like, you know, there's another thing in life that you have to go through so much to get the thing, you know. It's like, getting a car is hard, but it's nothing like this. 
But in the end of it all, it's like, I just want you. I just want to spend the rest of my life with you. That's really what matters. And you get so caught up in all the rituals and routines and who should come and where and not and who's going to be offended and all that. Then you, you get to that point where you're just like, dude, can we just like get married and be married people? And, uh, Amen. But understand, the the reason the guy's like that is because he's never dreamt about a woman, he's just dreamt about a girl. Mm -hmm. He's going to get the girl. She may have dreamt about the wedding. So let her have her wedding. That's good, but here's the cool thing if the wedding's going to be like what we see in Scripture. Let everyone know this is my girl. And I'm very pleased that this is my girl. And live Christ in that moment. Because then you're like, wow, Jesus feels this towards me? Wow. And then you wake up and go, oh my goodness, I'm a married person. This is crazy. Well, 20 years ago, I can still feel it when I think about it. And it's People are still like, man, I wish I was married when they were around us. And I'm like, so we must be doing something, right? Because if you're hanging out, people around you and they're like, oh my God, I'm single. I'd be like, well, what are we doing? <laughs> but does that, does that mean it's harder for a single person to, you know, because so many of the things like adoption, marriage, birth, they're all things through marriage, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. So for single people, that's, you know, that's quite. Is that all great? Well, I, I can't imagine what... Well, there is a, there's an advantage for a single person. Because he tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 mm. that you get to be single-minded. I will always have to think on two camps. Mm. I have to think about... I mean, when you're single, God could have said... To be honest, when I was single, God might have said, and that was enough. Whatever it was. That might be God, but I'm going to do it. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to risk it. You get married, and it's like God should, you want to make sure God said that. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot more at stake. Then you have kids, and then there's a lot more at stake. Mm-hmm. All right, Lord, I want to be sure it's you. Before that point, it's like, what? Jump off the cliff? Okay. <laughs> you know. Was that God? Maybe. But, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but it tells us that. A person who's single cares only for the things of the Lord. But a person who's married cares to care of the things of the Lord and the things of the world. So, so there is that benefit. Kind of so, okay. I'm gonna, let's, let's pray. And I... Look at... Every one of you is engaged. You're just engaged to the... You're engaged to the one being in eternity that's perfect. So the only fault, how hard is this? The only fault in this relationship is ours. He's never going to do anything wrong. Wow, pressure's on. But he's also remarkably forgiving. Aren't you thankful for him? And he still plans on presenting us pure before the eternity. Oh, the grace.